Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by our two lecturers at Catholic Studies Academy, Dr. Richard Bruzzichelli, our lecturer in theology, and Dr. Benjamin Smith, our lecturer in philosophy. And today, the topic that we're going to cover is Paschal joy, Easter joy. But before we get started here real quick, I want to invite all of our listeners to help us by sharing our content. So any of the the videos, podcasts, any of the content that you receive from Catholic Studies Academy, if you know any friends or family that would make use of it, that would find it interesting, that might benefit them, uh, please like, share, uh, email it to them. Drop it off at the doorstep in an unmarked envelope. Do whatever you have to do <laughs> and uh, uh, share our content. It's there to build up the body of Christ, and it's there to help our, especially our Catholic laity, uh, to become well-informed Catholics who are able to think deeply about the issues that uh, surround us, not only in the world, but in the church itself. So to get us started today, uh, Dr. Buzzichelli, many times we hear this kind of phrase, uh, Easter joy or Paschal joy, or, you know, we are an Easter people. A resurrection people. Yeah, a resurrection people. Yeah, yeah. W- what, is it, what does that mean? Is it, is it just, you know, sentimentalism? Is it just a nice thought during this time that's not Lent? You know, does it just mean that we can now <laughs> eat meat and we can eat meat and drink beer? So, yes, we should be joyful, but like, there there has to be something deeper than this uh, uh what what does this actually mean well i fear that actually in many instances it is nothing but bald sentimentalism however uh it shouldn't be and mm-hmm. i think theologically it clearly isn't right right so the idea of um to say that we we're an easter people that we experience paschal joy right is really to say that we're recognizing the implications of the resurrection, right? So the implications then of of the whole mystery of the incarnation here now, reaching what is their sort of logical conclusion in the earthly ministry of Christ. Then we we see in light of that, um, of the conclusion of Christ's earthly ministry, what the still further implications of the resurrection are for sort of the eschatological picture, right, of the world right of creation itself yeah yeah no there's a, there's a lot there and i think you know it, it seems you know when i hear that it, it really seems to uh uh point back to things we've talked about before particularly about kind of this catholic worldview uh, mm-hmm. that, uh-huh. that that we look at things different we and not to say that that it's just that we we form this catholic worldview and then everything is is bliss and we understand everything but that you know during certain periods we have to be you know particularly conscious of the Catholic lens with which we view the world, you know? So during, right. you know, during Lent, I mean, you can have great things happen during Lent, but there still is, you know, kind of a somberness to the whole season as well. So Dr. Smith, maybe you can hit on this, you know, how, you know, how does this kind of uh, get beyond maybe sentiments? Well, I think what uh, Rich said was uh, having this sort of eschatological perspective here is important. So probably need to say, uh, you probably need to say something rich about what you mean by eschatology. But yeah, um, that wouldn't be a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but in general, right? I mean, the if you think about it, you could think about it. I think sort of like kind of metaphysically, or you could think about it in terms of kind of salvation history, right? Like I don't think those are contrary perspectives. I just think they're kind of distinct ways of approaching it. Uh, so one way you could think about it, right, 
in terms of Catholic worldview, right, is reconciling things with respect to God uh, in terms of God being sort of um, the first cause, God being the Lord, God being the provident governor of all things, right, God being our ultimate end, right? There's a way in which um, there's a realignment of things, right, um, with God under Christ and through Christ, right, where we're sort of lined back up, right? Like, so since the fall, right, the fundamental sort of hierarchy that exists between God and man and creation in general has been disturbed, right, and uh, violated and undermined. With the resurrection, right, um, you get sort of a realignment or a reestablishment of the order of justice, at least the beginnings of that, right? So one of the things I really love is in Thomas's discussion of the reasons for the resurrection, he gives five of them. And the fifth, uh, good, good scholastic, right? If you can give one reason, you might as well give five, right? <laughs> uh, but the the fifth one, which I think is really interesting, is he says that it's for the completion of our justification, which is something that I think oftentimes goes unnoticed in Thomas's work, right? Which is that, that Thomas uh, recognizes certainly that the passion uh, plays an important part in our justification, the necessary and essential part, but then our resurrection, but that God, uh, Jesus's resurrection does as well. Uh, and so what you really see there, I think, in Thomas's idea, right, is that Christ as the firstborn uh, of many is sort of reestablishing, right, that order of of justice, right, uh, mm-hmm. in his resurrection, right? So he's, we're not just being saved from sin, which is important and necessary, but in addition to that, um, being realigned with uh, and reintroduced into right order to God and not, to, and not, and not primarily sentimental. I mean, it ha- it, obviously, that should fill us with sentiments of, of joy uh, and delight uh, and things of that sort of nature. But in, in a sense, it has a has a, it, that's one way of talking about uh, reestablishing the order of justice between uh, you know creatures and God. So, in, in the in the primitive church, you know, I think that the primary um, the primary thing, right, was that resurrection solved a basic problem, which had been with us since the fall, which is that we die. So basically, the um, if you think about, um, you know, death as this major disruptor of uh, human relationships, right? I mean, in death, you, the reason you sort of don't like when people die is that you never see them again, right? They're cut off from the world of relations with other human beings. But when Christ enters into death, right? So there's the, the mystery of, um, of Christ's descent into hell, right, is what's kind of at issue in the resurrection. And just as a caveat, I would point out that in the in the um, Eastern iconographic tradition, at least early on, the more widely depicted uh, subject, right, was the harrowing of hell rather than the resurrection. And you could you could ask, well, why would that be the case, right? We hardly talk about the harrowing of hell at all in the West, but it's a huge issue in the East. Why? Well, because really the harrowing of hell, the the resurrection is sort of a um, a foregone conclusion once there's the harrowing of hell, right? Here's the way the, the mystery works. Christ, who can never be alienated from the Father, enters into death, which is the place of radical alienation, right? And thereby contradicts its very essence. So in his human nature, right, he sub, he suffers the... He suffers that sort of wrenching from the world of human relationships that every human being kind of experiences, right, in death. But he can't be separated from the Father. And so um, 
he enters into he enters into death in relation, right, in an inviolable relationship with the Father. He's not alone, right? Remember his words in John's Gospel: "I'm never alone. The Father is with me." Right. So thereby, it right, destroys the hold that death has over him and over humanity. That is to say, over those in humanity who are joined to him. So his resurrection, right, is the cause of our resurrection. And this death problem is basically solved for us. It reminds me of a pastor of mine. He he uh, he was a really good homilist, but he had this phrase kind of when preaching on this, um, which I think which I think is kind of apropos. And I think it's a good image to use. And in, in uh, he would constantly say, you know, how dark would the darkness be if there was no light? And, and he would kind of take this up as a, a central theme to to many of his uh, homilies. Uh, and, and I think that's, you know, I, I really like that image, especially because, I mean, if you've ever been in like complete darkness, I mean, it's crazy. It's, it's awesome. It's, it's weird. Um, and the smallest light is so bright, so bright. I remember one time driving through uh, Big Ben National Park, which is like, I don't know, millions and millions of acres out in the middle of uh, Southwest Texas, mostly West Texas. And, and I mean, it was, it was like two in the morning. We were, we were, we were driving through and it was just pitch black. I mean, you couldn't see anything and, and we got out to stop and stuff. And I mean, the stars and just the light from our vehicle, uh, the, the way it illumined the darkness was, you know, for us, it was, it was, it was a joy, you know, cause good night, it would be frightening if you didn't have that. But I think, but I think that's a, you know, a kind of a good image, you know, to, to think about, even though we're, we're now entering into Easter, there is th that light becomes a little more brighter it was it was somewhat hidden for those three days um but it becomes but it becomes brighter and so because of that light the things of the world become the things in our mind the truths in our mind become a little more you know in light yeah so you see these themes in the um in the exultet right at the easter vigil you know the praise for the for the candle that dispels the darkness right mm -hmm. And it's um, it's divided but undimmed, right? So it, it, the the candle is this little bit of light that enters into enters into the darkness, right? And begins to push it away, drive it away, right? And it spreads through the life of the church. And this is basically the contagion of uh, the resurrection of Christ. Drawing on the Easter Vigil, you know, you said it, it really has kind of this this salvific historical perspective to it even when you look at the easter vigil the readings for the easter vigil you know when the light comes in you know what is there eight readings and they they march through salvation history uh and lead mm. to the you know the sacraments and primarily uh the eucharist i, mean, I think rich could probably speak to that uh more clearly than than i can but uh, my kids ask uh permission to uh go to all of the easter liturgy last year like to everything <laughs> Because uh, we'd gone to each of them before, but we hadn't gone to all of them, I think, since they were like babies or something like that. So they didn't remember it. And uh, and so I was like, yeah, sure. That's great. But we, we'll do it. You know, <laughs> and they'll never forget it. <laughs> they never ask for it again. <laughs> <laughs> all of those readings, right? Easter Vigil. And I think those readings, of course, you know, bring out sort of the, the drama of uh, redemptive history, uh, which certainly, um, you know, culminates in, in overcoming Right, the sting of death and overcoming the last enemy uh, that's uh, of death, but also in restoring um, that order of justice. Right, that is, in making satisfaction for um, 
you know, the, the, the sins of mankind. I think uh, it's important to have in view both, right? The healing of human hurts, but it's not just, but it's not only a matter of healing of human hurts, right? It's, that is death. It's also a matter of, we have a problem with the creator of the universe, right? Um, uh, namely, we're rebels, <laughs> right? We've rebelled against him and we deserve to be punished for that and we deserve hell for it. So that part of, right, that sort of healing and overcoming of death is also satisfying divine justice um, in the Passion of the Cross, and which is, you know, f- you know, finally culminates in and is completed in, right, uh, in its fullness uh, in the, the resurrection. Uh, so we can see both, right, the satisfaction of divine justice and the overcoming of death in the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, the, pro- the, pro- the reason we're dying in the first place is because of sin, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, as long as that condition perdures, we're still going to have death, okay? So I think it, it, it sort of presupposes, right? It presupposes that um, there is some kind of satisfaction, right? That justice is restored. Also, it permits, right, the restoration of justice to occur on mm-hmm. a wider scale, right? I think what you have is sort of like, I mean, when I think about the, all of these mysteries, of course, tie together, but I think when you have the, the passion, the resurrection, the ascension, uh, as Jason pointed out a couple podcasts ago, the ascension often right kind of gets the short end of the stick. Uh, but there's there's the overcoming of death, there's the uh, satisfaction of justice, there's a restoration of justice. But all of this finds its kind of its fullest uh, culmination, right? And thinking about it as the initiation of the kingdom of God, right? So you're mm-hmm. thinking about uh, earlier, I think, when you were alluding to sort of the eschatological significance, thing, right. right? There's a way in which we want to say, right, that the resurrection and part of our joy, right? is that that long sought for, that long promised uh, kingdom of God is beginning, right, to exist in a sense, right? There's an, some sort of initial kind of establishment of that kingdom. Uh, the way I hear, you know, theologians and, and, and several of the popes put it is that um, initiated but not consummated, right? Right, right. Uh, we have the, the initiation of that kingdom. And we really think about how important that is in the whole sweep of, redemptive history in the Bible, right? Um, that's, I think, really sort of brings out a great deal of the aspect of the joy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, this is the real promised land, right? Right, right. Um, all of these, di- there are all of these different instances in which, you know, there are promises and, and failures on, on man's side, right? <clears throat> right. Uh, to fulfill the covenant. But here we have God sort of fulfilling it on his own, right? And initiating, right, the the establishment of the kingdom. And that really is, I mean, that's what everybody's yearning for in the Bible, right? Right. Uh, the prophets and so forth. And so uh, all of that, I think it's, you know, sort of thinking about overcoming death, uh, thinking about satisfying justice, um, gets sort of wrapped up into, right, this new sort of uh, reality that is the kingdom. In the Bible, you see this imagery from the very beginning, right? The promised land isn't something that just shows up at the time of the um, when God talks to Abraham, right? Although it's a pronounced uh, thesis, and it's not, it's not just you know in Exodus, right? But the promised land actually begins, right? The search for the promised land begins immediately after the fall. The man and the woman are driven out of the garden uh, to till the ground from which they were taken, and they travel east of Eden, right? Now this is really interesting typological symbolism because. East is where the sun rises, right? And and typologically, that's where God, the, the light that breaks in, right? Where God draws near to man. So they're expelled from the garden, right? Away from the face of God. And yet, toward him, 
right? So as they as they leave the garden to till the ground, what? The ground from which they were taken, which is what? The pure soil of Eden, right? And their pain is to endure until they return to the ground from which they were taken. So there's this idea of some, it's very mysterious, right? But this idea of some purity in the future sure. that at the moment eludes them, and they're already moving towards it, even as God is driving them out of the garden. Sure. Then when when Cain is um, is punished after killing Abel, where does he where does he go? Right, he settles in the land of Nod, which means nowhere. Right, and it's also located east of Eden. Now, what's interesting about it being nowhere, right, is that God had condemned Cain, right, to be a wanderer, a fugitive, and a wanderer over the earth, which he refused to accept. That was actually Abel's condition, right? You see what I mean? Shepherd, right, wandered over the surface of the earth. And now Cain, right, he fears that, that someone will treat him the way he treated Abel. And he, he refuses to accept this, this fate. And yet he ends up sort of receiving it uh, in a roundabout way anyway, okay? Mm -hmm. Now, the, the, the things don't really look good for Cain in the rest of the story about him. His, he uh, he propagates you know generation after generation of of uh, increasing evil. Okay, mm -hmm. but um, but nonetheless, you could see sort of in the trajectory of the movement, in the choreography of the story, that there is some direction, right? Mm -hmm. Even when human beings sin, there's this place of redemption in some possible future, right? Right, right. Which God is is um, is driving them towards, even in punishment. So this is a major, major theme, right? And then, of course, as we go through, as Doctor Smith was saying, you know, we go through the the history of salvation, and we see the Jews sort of, you know, lay hold of the promised land, but then they themselves don't behave in um, a promised landy kind of way, right? And they they end up repeating old sins and turning away from God, right? Idolatry comes sure. up. And eventually, they're driven out of this physical place. The mm -hmm. real promised land, right, is the place where humanity uh, and God are in perfect harmony with one another. And in that perfect harmony, uh, death itself is overcome, right? Everything that flows from the consequences of sin, right, everything that flows from sin is destroyed. And that's the heavenly Jerusalem, right, which, as it's depicted in the book of Revelation— Again, the divine initiative, right? It descends right. on a cloud, right? It descends from heaven. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of themes there that I think you can find throughout uh, Scripture, right? You can think about the promised land, the kingdom of God. <clears throat> you know, the, there's the, the repeated garden theme, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that we can find throughout uh, Scripture. And then the temple theme, right? Uh, yeah. Various temples, the temple that is Jesus Christ, of course, the you know, uh, and then eventually, you know, where we'll need no son because, you know, Jesus right. Christ himself right. will be the son. So uh, I think what you have there, right, um, <laughs> this is uh, maybe sort of aside, but you have this narrative, right, this historical, this history, uh, not just a narrative, but a dramatic history that God has worked in bringing about his kingdom, bringing about a kingdom, I think, in a lot of ways that verifies his greatness and his mercy and his goodness, also our inadequacy. Right? Oh. So I think about this often when I, so one of my favorite uh, poems uh, is Jerusalem. And uh, I think that's the name of it, Jerusalem. And in this uh, poem, towards the end of it, the, the author says, till we have built Jerusalem here in England's green and pleasant land. Uh. And, you know, it's a really beautiful poem in a lot of ways. It's very evocative and powerful. 
it's the it's the um, it's uh, the hymn that's sung at the uh, it's put it's made into a hymn actually and sung at the end of the the movie Chariots of Fire, which if you grew up evangelical, that was one of the two movies you were allowed to watch that <laughs> in Princess Bride. But anyways, uh, the, <laughs> um, it's a beautiful uh, hymn, right? Everything, but every time I recite it, I sort of think. There's a little bit wrong with that. Right? <laughs> you know, interestingly, I think that ties into inadequate versions of understanding Easter joy, right? And inadequate versions of thinking about <clears throat> the kingdom of God, right? These things that seem to be closely related. You know, the idea that we are going to build the kingdom of God. I think there's a hymn we often sing at mass that involves us building the kingdom of God. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it seems like that lyric sticks out to me. I guess there's probably a, a right way to understand that, right? There's plenty of wrong ways. Right? Yeah, right. So one of the things, there's this, uh, when I think about Easter and bad versions of Easter joy, right? They, they very often involve a gesture where you put your hands up like this, right? And like you're either some sort of internal renewal, right? So your emotions are getting better or you are, you've got a political agenda, right? Like you're going to really build the like the kingdom of God, right? So either of those seem to me to, obviously there's some kernel of truth, right? In both of them, but both of them seem to be kind of inadequate and distorted. What do you guys think right. about that? Yeah, well, I think, I think one thing like that Rich was saying was that trajectory. It's kind of our Easter joy that we didn't just, you know, sin and God said to hell with you. Kind of like the harrowing of hell. Those people were simply there waiting there was no go east of eden even though you were condemned you were you were you were on a, a trajectory you were you were given a path to salvation but in in hell there they were they were just kind of stuck they were wait they were just kind of there waiting now now granted we're still here waiting when you talk about that that easter joy is that is that we do have path to salvation um, but like you said it's not one that we build divine reality of it is greater than you know, any sort of human contribution that we can bring to it. You know, yes, it's, mm -hmm. yes, it's there and involves our cooperation, but it is not something that we literally build up ourselves, like some kind of, right. you know, social justice warrior kind of a, a deal or whatever. Um, but the fact right. also that we're not, we're not left without, without, we're not there left like those people in hell simply just waiting that, that we do have, uh, some somewhat of a mission, uh, a guiding light. We have a direction to where we're supposed to go. So um, the SJW approach to sort of the resurrection theme, right? Building the kingdom of God. It seems to me that it's fundamentally flawed in a number of ways, right? One of the obvious ways in which I think it constitutes a basic contradiction of the Judeo-Christian view of reality is that the SJW builds the, the so-called kingdom of God, right? from the finite material of the world. Mm. So we can um, redistribute a finite number of things, but, but human beings are incapable of actual creation. Sure. Where we can't make more where there was less, right? Whereas, right, the whole concept of the true kingdom in the Bible, mm -hmm. the land flowing with milk and honey, right? Mm -hmm. The land which involves resurrection, right? The land which involves water flowing forth from a rock, and bread raining down from heaven, mm -hmm. multiplication of loaves, right? Right. All of these symbols in the Bible, and I'm not saying they're just symbols, right? But whatever. So the th you get what I'm saying? Yeah. So sure. This imagery through which God speaks to man, okay, in his actions, uh, is imagery that that shows us evidence of his creative power. It reminds us, right, that he can always make more. Right. You see what yeah. I mean? 
Yeah, there's a kind of uh, infinity to it. There's no, I mean, this is going to sound maybe like a really boring way of putting it, but from a kind of economic perspective, like there's no scarcity. Right? There's right. only abundance. That's right. That's uh, right. Whereas in our world, there's always scarcity. Right. That's right. And the SJ, both the SJW, interestingly enough, and sort of the uh, the laissez-faire sort of, um, you know, robber baron type capitalist, sure. they both presuppose a world predicated on scarcity. And, and, you know, therefore the question is, well, how do we parse it all up? Uh, but that's not actually the question in the true kingdom of God, right? That, that, that Christ begins to inaugurate even now. And also, I mean, just what a low version of the kingdom in some ways. I yeah. mean, if the best version of the kingdom is a better version of the Soviet Union, then like, that's pretty disappointing, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, right. If it's right. a nice version of the soviet union or like let's say you had the best version of the soviet union you can imagine right um and it really did become sort of the workers paradise and you did have just like blissfully wonderful uh altruistic bureaucrats running everything as well as possible still right that's pretty low <laughs> like yeah that doesn't, I think the best sound, you can hope for there doesn't be... sound to me like the new jerusalem of the bible right, right. Like when i read the, the you know the last chapters uh the book revelation you know like that's moving right that's yeah, uh, powerful imagery that delights the senses, to be sure, but more importantly, delights the soul. You know, a really efficient distributive system run by bureaucrats. Just I mean, like, okay, <laughs> I guess. I mean, if that's what that was all about, like, it's yeah, and like, but but like Dr. Buzikelli said, like it, it, and it's built on a false premise that you can, you know, draw this infinite happiness, infinite fulfillment from finite goods, right. or from just finite everything. I mean, there's there's you know. Uh, really no kind of infinite power sure. or anything yeah. within this idea right. of the kingdom. You know, th th this is where I think dystopian novels uh, sometimes are useful, right, in movies, because lots of times what you'll have is a is a pure, a perfect, in some dystopian things, right, you'll have a perfect distributive system run by a fully, perfectly rational bureaucracy, right, in which all of your physical needs are met. There's little to no pain, right? There's pleasure almost at demand, right? So you actually get kind of what you might imagine an earthly paradise to be like from a certain point of view, right? <laughs> and yet, you know, you find people desperately sad, right? Or, uh, you know, you know, recognizing the inauthenticity and the lack of freedom and, and so forth. In many of those novels, the uh, uh, whoever's in charge, the state or the government, you know, they, they constantly have to anesthetize their people, you know, they're constantly giving them something to distract them, to, to keep them calm, you know? So right. You know, that right there should be a big giveaway. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but, but going, I, I want to go back to maybe this, this idea that you were talking about with, cause I think it's important, particularly for, you know, how do we live this Easter joy? Uh, one of the things you talked about, Dr. Smith was kind of this idea uh, of order uh, in particular, mm -hmm. like I, th I, I think that's always you know something that that Catholics long for when they when they understand the proper when they understand proper orders of things they, you know they do seek to order. Uh, uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about maybe the how do how does the Easter event how does it how does it kind of order our lives in kind of a maybe a practical way. Uh, to live this this Easter joy, this Paschal joy. Well, one thing that immediately comes to mind uh, is the order of ends, right? So not surprisingly, being a Thomist, I think this way about things. <laughs> uh, um, that there, you know, one of the things that we miss, I think, very often is we misunderstand the object of our hope, right? Mm. 
this always actually, <laughs> this is, uh, <laughs> grieves me, right, actually, in a lot of ways. Um, there are numerous passages in the Bible that get misapplied, that really have as their, as their goal, right, that is as their sort of reference point, this eschatological realization we're talking about, really mm -hmm. the hope of the resurrection, the hope of unending life, the hope of uh, the new body, uh, uh, of the glorified body, um, the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, and instead they get applied to, you know, you getting a new house, <laughs> right, or a better job or overcoming a disease, right? Mm -hmm. And while those things, some of those are more important than others, that's not necessarily, that actually gets the thing wrong, right? <laughs> like it's actually misunderstanding the point, right? Which is that our, our hope ultimately is in the resurrection of the body and the new heavens and the new earth, not in a new political regime, not in a better house, not in a better career, not in overcoming even a health problem. That's not the, that's not the objective of the theological virtue of hope. The, the, the objective of that is, is, is God, right, in that full sort of eschatological uh, fulfillment. It's okay to want those other things. It's okay to want a better career, a new house to overcome disease and all that sort of thing. But we should recognize that, like, we have a hope that's... Um, uh, not vulnerable to the caprices of, of right uh, disease or the job market or things of that nature, right? Yeah, you could lose those things. That's right. Yeah, and that should actually give us a great deal of and uh, uh, fortitude and joy, right? That is that there is a there is a uh, a fullness that I hope for that's beyond market forces, <laughs> right? Uh, and that's that's actually I think. Uh, a matter of uh, great joy and relief. Joel Osteen would disagree with you. What do you think, Dr. Bruce yeah. Kelly? <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Smith and Joel Osteen, you decide. <laughs> Pick a side. The end of the world is not the end of the world, right? That's the way I tend to put it. I mean, this is basically the this is the uh, the summary the summary way of articulating the mystery of theological hope, right? Mm -hmm. Um, if we losing everything, right, the ground on which you stand, right? We see the psalmist say, you know, um, though the earth, should the earth give way, right? Uh, God is on my side. So what God does occasionally, right, because perhaps of our weakness of faith, right, and therefore our weakness of hope, is he, throughout the course of our lives, manifests his glory by... Um, by showing us, reminding us that he's really there and active and powerful, right? So he does occasionally perform miracles, heal disease. Uh, he does intervene and, you know, in the most unlikely of scenarios, uh, brings about some, some good, right, um, where we needed it the most, okay? You know, he does sort of pull, um, pull a job out of the hat for us when we need work, that kind of thing. But not in every case and not you know, not with every person. And not uh, necessarily when we want it. What's that? <laughs> not necessarily on our schedule, right? Not on our schedule, right? Not on our terms. But he does he does do this from time to time. Sure. And one of the things that, even when he's not doing it for me, but for the guy next to me, um, it reminds me that he's real and powerful, right? And so it, it can buoy up, or the miracle for the other guy buoys up those weak in faith, right? Uh, even who are close to him, even the observer. Now that being said, um, Ben's right, right? The the real goal is something is something else, right? It's not it's not um, 
this job which I can also lose, right? But this new this new kingdom. If you think about all of the problems of the passing away of the world, right? The way Paul puts it, he says, he says it is the schema of the world to be to be passing away, right? That it it's part of the very um, the provisional structure of reality, okay? Is that it passes away? That's the world that we live in. But that's the whole problem that needs to be overcome. And even the Greek philosophers recognized, right, that corruptibility is is really a, an essential part of the problem that we face. So, um, you know, we have to sort of put on incorruptibility, right? We have to put on incorruption. And this comes from Christ, right, in the resurrection. So one of the really interesting things, then, that we find in the idea of resurrection uh, and this is sort of to, to sort of explore the idea as a kind of comparative religious question. There are many religious views that presuppose some sort of uh, some sort of either personality, right, or um, some sort of some kind of regeneration. But what Christianity proposes in the resurrection of the body is actually something quite different from what we find elsewhere. What we don't have, right? is reincarnation we don't have right is is that somehow we're put back into a bodily existence the same as the one we have now right the structure of reality is the same as it is now but we just come back and start we go through it again that's not what we're talking about right mm -hmm. uh, nor are we talking about a sort of disembodied reality right where we turn into just sort of pure spirits like the Gnostics might have held, right? Uh, nor are we talking about going on as we are now, but in an unending succession of days, right? There is actually something kind of different about the notion of resurrection. So different, really, that we can't say for sure exactly what it is. But I think the way we can maybe describe it is like this, right? All of those aspects of physical being that trace themselves to the fall, okay? For example, the dominance of death cease to be a part of what being material means in glorification. And, um, and instead, right, matter, while remaining matter, is now brought under, this goes to, 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 to Ben's uh, discussion about the restoration of the order of things, right? It, it comes under the governance of spirit directly, right? So rather than spirit being governed by matter, uh, as we experience in this life, right, the spiritual life is subject to some sort of rule of the material world which is passing away, that, that order is reversed and restored to its original state, right, where spirit dominates over matter. Oh, I like that. It's a good way. It's a good way. A good kind of juxtaposition to put it in. That's good. Yeah, I think it's uh, in in light of that. I think it's useful to um, you know sometimes people kind of uh, make fun of or or, or kind of uh, you know tease about some of the patristic or scholastic views about sort of um, the aureoles and the halos and the you know the, the the beauty of the resurrected body and things of that nature. But I think one thing to, to keep in mind when you're thinking about those things is that those are ways of trying to get at, I think, what Rich is talking about. Um, that yeah. there's, they're trying to, to, to sort of outline and trying to manifest this idea of 
it's still being material it's still matter um but it's it's matter that's been sort of elevated and uh maybe pervaded by the sort of higher light and higher kind of uh reality that that we have that's that's supernatural when you think about what uh, some scholastics say about you know, sort of the beauty of the resurrected body right that there you have really the um the spiritual beauty of the saints will be mani- made manifest physically, right? Mm-hmm. I take great relief in this myself. <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe even I can be beautiful. Wow, right? <laughs> but uh, but uh, but more seriously, I mean, I think it's that's an interesting way of thinking about it, right? Where you're trying to to bring out this um, uh, deeper dimension, and also follow up on what Rich is saying about just comparatively, right? Uh, he's definitely right about that. I and mean, when you think about say. Even Platonism, right, or versions of Platonism that have some things that I think uh, the early Christians found attractive and appropriated, even sort of Platonic eschatology is 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 significantly uh, different from uh, Christian uh, eschatology. For one thing, death is kind of a relief, right, uh-huh. in, a, uh, in a Neoplatonic setting, right, for Plotinus. Death for the soul that's recovered its right ordination to the one is actually escape. Right, uh, it's not a it's not a problem to be overcome. It's a solution to be embraced. Right, yeah, um, right. And so uh, uh, there's that side of it. You know, certainly within the Eastern religions, really interesting. Immortality is kind of assumed to be true, and it's mm-hmm. a problem. <laughs> right? The problem yeah. is we keep getting bored over and over again. Right. So yeah. you know, right. Hinduism and and Buddhism is centered around the idea of escaping samsara which is this 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 pattern of endless rebirth right you, you don't yeah. want to keep going forever you want to get out of that problem now exactly uh what uh nirvana looks like right is a matter of great uh contention among scholars who study this but probably the most positive thing you could say about it is that it's consciousness without thought or desire yeah <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure so that's any more awareness without any particular yeah. ideas. I'm not sure that's any more um, comprehensible than than my weird view of ma- of matter, right? <laughs> <laughs> right, and and, and, and importantly, the, the as he puts it, the the flame of desire is blown out, right? Uh, uh, which is so interesting. I mean, what a what an interesting way of putting it, right? It's very evocative, right? In a way, uh, whereas you know, in Christianity, you no, know, the flame of desire is it may be quenched in a different way, right? It's fulfilled, <laughs> right? Right. The heart is at peace because it's found rest, not because it's been destroyed. Yeah. Right. 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 It's not <laughs> blown know? out. Right. That's right. It's a. Uh, it's the uh, light. So it isn't in rest, it. but it's the rest yeah. of fulfillment. Right. Right. It, what came to mind was you know just the 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 idea of demonization, you know that the early church mm-hmm. fathers talked about a lot more than we talk about today but even beginning to enter into that as partake you know what we mean by grace partakers of uh, god's own nature that it's not annihilated but it's transformed along with the resurrection you know i think you know one of those huge distinguishing characteristics that christianity brings uh uh, to to the world so i I think one of the ways to sort of imagine this and it's not going to help okay but thanks I mean, it's not going to help. <laughs> the image I'm going to give you is not something you can really imagine anyway. But if you think about, you know, Moses' encounter with God in the form of the burning bush, if you imagine, so here's this fire that burns, it totally engulfs the bush, but it doesn't 
destroy it, right? Mm -hmm. And Moses approaches it, okay? If you imagine what the, what living in um, the resurrection would be like, okay, is to be the bush, right? To like enter into the fire, right? Which is God's presence. So here the bush is still the bush, right? It's still sort of, it's a material thing. But unlike its normal condition, right? The normal condition, well, what we would call the normal condition from our fallen world experience of a plant on fire, right? It, it would be consumed. It would be burned up, but not in this case, right? It's matter doesn't behave that way. And so you get what I'm saying? So if you sort of picture, right? So you have the most desirable thing there could possibly be to have, right? Which is, which is God, the answer to every question, the source of the source of all good things, God, right? The thing for which you were made, you've entered into oneness with him, right? And you're not destroyed. You're not destroyed by that. His incorruptibility is, is imparted to you, right? It's not, it doesn't annihilate your mm -hmm. corruptibility. A lot of these things that we're talking about, that's kind of that perspective that we need to have as, as joyful Catholics uh, to, to have that kind of eschatological view of the world uh, mm -hmm. uh, to even the good things that we do here on earth to understand that the, the there's a small portion to it uh, that is limited to this world that it's that there, there there's something else out there but also to take that the resurrection and use it to order our lives um, um, because that's exactly what the resurrection did is it brought that uh, uh, fulfilled uh, that justice with God um, and brought an order uh, to reconciliation with God the Father. Um, so any fi any final thoughts on you know making this making this a, a bit more real maybe for mm -hmm. for Catholics to live this this Easter joy? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think the concrete thing is to think about those those things to focus on those things uh, which bear more directly right on the eschaton right and on the kingdom of God. Of course, all of the, you know, the three of us are are are, are laymen. And we're or, and we it is our duty to order the, the uh, to bring order to the temporal mm -hmm. sphere, but always with a, a mind towards right, uh, and a I think I think uh, deep engagement with those things that bear on the real meaning of the kingdom of God, not politics, not getting a better career, not your job, not your house, not your car, not promoting yourself, uh, all the all that kind of stuff, right. Oh, some of that's okay in some context, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you know, prayer uh, and liturgy, uh, those seem to me to be the things that bear most directly in our lives on the kingdom of God. One thing I remember, maybe Rich you could, or Jason, you can remind me of this specific document, but the, the Second Vatican do, uh, Council document on religious life. One of the things that uh, it says in there is it talks about the idea of religious as an eschatological sign, right? Mm -hmm. As a sign of the eschaton. And that, I think, is true of religious, and religious needs to take that very seriously. But, you know, it's not just true of religious, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. It is true of religious preeminently and, and primarily. That is that is their focus. But it's also true of every Christian, right? Every Christian uh, is meant to be an eschatological sign. It should be evident to the world that we're not living for the world but living for a supernatural good. We're living for uh, the kingdom of God uh, beyond, right, um, or at the end of, or beyond history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I agree with everything that you're saying there. I mean, I think as far as, like, personal conduct goes, the way we go through life, 
that's what it's supposed to look like if that's a confession of our belief in the resurrection. I want to speak, though, to, I mean, my thoughts are sort of on um, the practical implications in terms of how we receive in this life the things that happen to us, right? You know, we look at a past, one of the pesky problems about the past is that we can't do anything about it, right? Okay, I mean, it's one of the things, like, you have you have regrets because because you may have you may have done things or failed to do things that you can't uh, you can't take back at the sure. point, right? But belief in the resurrection, uh, I think, tells us right that the cosmos is being so radically transformed by the power of God in the resurrection, right? That we can we can with confidence leave these problems to. Uh, his providence, right? You know, you can go forward in life, even from perhaps a pretty bad past, and just sort of like let God, after a certain point, deal with the wreckage, right? I mean, there's only so much you can do, uh, and then you can do no more. So there is a, and and I and I don't, you know, I mean, I mean this very seriously, right? So there's a there's sure. an old story about a um, about a woman who goes to confess. To uh, it's a, it's a, like a, a Russian Orthodox thing. She goes to a priest and she confesses and and she confesses that she um, that she gossiped, right? And the priest says, "Okay, um, I want you to come back to me next week for absolution, but first I want you to do your penance." Okay. <laughs> right. And so so he says, "Take a pillow and um, cut it open, and I want you to throw uh, all the." all the feathers to the wind, right? So she goes and, and she does that. She comes back in the next week and she's like, okay, I did that. I, d I did the feather thing. And he says, okay, no, now go and I, I want you to gather them up, <laughs> right? Well, of course, she can't possibly, she can't possibly do that. And that's the point, right? She can't possibly do it, but God will fix the problem, right? And she'll, she'll be absolved of her sins and and she'll, God will fix the problem that she cannot fix, right? The mm -hmm. things about her past sins that she can't undo. God takes care of this. And this is part of what I think um, hope in resurrection really involves, right? And all of the losses, right? Blessed are those who mourn. They will be comforted, right? All of the losses we experience, both the past we can't undo, the, the people who've died we'll never see again in this life. The, the opportunities that have passed us by, all of these things, right, can only do so much harm to those who live in the hope of the resurrection. Yeah, and I think a good a good image to leave with our leave with our viewers when we're talking about how do we live as an Easter people. I think the disposition we should have should be one that's modeled off of what we see in um, iconography. That the Christian should go forward like that of the saint, with one eye looking forward and one eye looking up. It's very easy for us to to focus on the things of the world and to take the eye off of heaven, but to but to keep that eye on heaven, um, but also to understand that that God has not left us, He's not abandoned us. We're not doomed to annihilation, um, but that we're we're called to go in a particular direction. And so we look forward, but we also uh, keep the eye to heaven. Uh, and so with that, I want to thank our uh, listeners for joining us today. Please like and share uh, our content. Uh, any of it we would uh, we would love and appreciate um, uh, anything you can help us out with uh, and so we I also want to invite our listeners to check us out at catholicstudiesacademy.com until next time god bless <laughs>